Welcome to What's the Word Downtown, a weekly podcast dedicated to mining the depths of the word, a word that's sharp and active in downtown Tyler, Texas. Join Eric, Matt, and Mike as we get the word out at Bethel. Hey, welcome to What's the Word Downtown. My name's Matt. This is Pastor Eric Barton here at Bethel Bible Church, and uh, we are discussing the stories of, or the story of Abraham. Abram become Abraham, right? Uh, his wife, his concubine, mm-hmm. uh, the the child of disobedience, the child of obedience, the child of perceived strength and ingenuity. That's right. right? So that's right. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the delivery mechanism of our understanding and our gazing at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this section of the book of Genesis is the life and struggles of Abraham, who's always called the man of faith, except for when he's not particularly faithful. So I keep going back to Moses writing this to instruct the people at his time. And honestly, like this walk through Genesis has been revolutionary for me only because I might have known that Moses wrote this inspired as he was to tell the people the history. Yeah. Is he seeking to remind them? Did that would they have known this from an oral tradition, and this was just Genesis was it was put down, was put to paper. Yeah, I mean this was an oral tradition. Would the people have known it? But likely, you know, their children might have forgot. I mean, through the through the generations, had they kind of forgotten? Or were these a people that were cut off from essentially their father Abraham, uh, in a in in some way? It's a great question. Favor? Yeah. And we don't know for sure, of course, but what we do know is people, and we know what people were like in that number of people that lived in the land of Goshen and Egypt. Some people probably knew more than others. There were some families and tribes and clans that were probably very emphatic and intentional about the passing down of oral tradition to their children. But like any group of people or in any community, there are those who were less disciplined and less committed to passing down those stories. And so Moses has the chance to write all of this down to get everybody on the same page. And what I love about Moses being the one to do that is here is a here is a man who as a child was injected into a foreign right. land of foreign people who comes to an awareness in, in, in his own right as a man of who he is not not in his home of origin, right? But who he always was. Well, and here's the really mind-blowing bit. Yeah. Moses is writing this down, and he makes it pretty clear. We'll see some of this in the book of Joshua, that Moses would go in daily in the tent of meeting with the Lord, who we know would be pre-incarnate Christ, who is telling him all these things. It's very similar to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, sitting out mm-hmm. in the deserts of Arabia for as many as... 14 to 17 years, Jesus is explaining all these things to Paul. Paul writes 13 epistles. In the same way, Moses is sitting in the tent of meeting, getting all this revelation directly from God, who then sits down to document it for, in the near term, the people of Israel, so that they would know this is what their God is. This is what he's like, because he's not like any other human system of belief in existence. There are Ancient religions, but they're all the same except for, well, Judeo-Christianity. Well, and that there's that there's a consistency 
to the Lord your Father. Right. Right. And so I'm gonna. You know who he is. You know he's just delivered you through the Red Sea, uh, or is that the Dead Sea? Red Sea. Red Sea. Yeah. Uh, it just delivered you through the Red Sea. You have had this experience of salvation in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you might not remember that the same God who delivered you through the Red Sea was simply acting out of his faithfulness, out of, acting out of his character. And let me show you why and how. Yeah. He's always been the same. Yes. Moses, in a sense, saying God's going to God. Mm-hmm. That's what he is. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. That's what he's mm-hmm. like. And when you forget, not if, when you forget, hey, Abraham did too. Mm-hmm. So it's not about you being Captain Awesome. That's right. Somebody in the That's tribe right. of Zebulun. Mm-hmm. This is our God who and, is faithful. And look at look at this, warts and all, this man and his wife who had that human mixture of belief and unbelief. Right, right. Which is ultimately the predicament every human has ever been in. Right. And, you know, we're, we're moving toward uh, this, uh, this God walking through the cut-up pieces on our behalf mm-hmm. in a very uh, real way in becoming Christ or in, in revealing Christ to us some how many years, thousands of years later yep. after this is telling. So so as we back up um, to Abraham, and the first is the covenant that, that God strikes. Well, very briefly, yes. Yes. God comes to Abram in early Chaldees. He's 75 years old, makes him a promise. I'm going to give you land, offspring, and blessing. Then some crazy things happen moves him through the land. And then in chapter 15, he cuts covenant with Abram and declares Abram righteous because Abram believes. And that's always the thing. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Abram believes. He's declared righteous by God. God changes his mind about Abraham. He says, I declare you righteous. You are now fit to stand before me because of what God has done and said. Mm-hmm. Now that's key. That's mm-hmm. crucial. In fact, mm-hmm. we said it a couple weeks ago, the apostle Paul writes the book of Romans to unpack the enormity of that truth. The very next thing we have happen, a couple years go by, the next thing we're told is that Abram and Sarah say, gosh, this has taken a long time. He promised us a son. We put all of our hope in the son, but there's no son. And so they rely on the cultural construct of going into a concubine. Mm -hmm. Sarah says, look, this is taking a long time. I'm getting older. God's faithful, maybe, but this is, the text says, too marvelous. Maybe if it's to be, it's up to me. It's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. And so we have the horribly tragic story. God loves those who help themselves. <laughs> right. God yeah, helps those who they help themselves. Help themselves. Yeah. Ben Franklin, mm-hmm. Poor Richard's Almanac, not mm-hmm. inspired mm-hmm. and not true. So Abram goes into Sarah. They conceive Ishmael and all this stuff happens. Not Sarah. Sorry, goes into Hagar. Mm-hmm. They conceive Ishmael and you think, well, that's it. It's come from Abraham's body. God says, no. This is not how we're going to do this. And yet they still wait. By the way, isn't your Jewishness all, doesn't always come through the line of the mother? So that's... that's is that the beginning of this we idea? We think that's yeah. true. We wouldn't say that's a dogmatic thing that we stand on. It seems mm-hmm. to be that mm-hmm. way. I, w- I don't know that I would say that's absolutely bedrock, but mm-hmm. it probably so. But here again we have... We've seen Cain and Abel. We've seen uh, Abraham and Lot... Is that right? His nephew. Mean, or his nephew. I mean, they kind of split up, right? right? What we see again and again, it seems like, is two men. One goes the way he ought not. One goes the way that he that he should. Yeah, and we're going to see again and again. Yeah. Ishmael and then Isaac. Right. We have, right. Uh, there's there's polarities that are being set up. Yeah. Who are you, Moses is asking. 
Right. And God's going to say, I choose, I direct, follow, mm -hmm. obey, walk with me. And so we are reminded again in chapter 17, God comes to Abram, changes his name, adds this sort of mnemonic syllable into his name. Yeah, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah. There's the idea that, hey, you are now identified with me. You. Very similar call back to Genesis 2 where God breathes on the man and ruach. animates. Yes, the ruach yeah. is the spirit. Mm -hmm. So we got that, and then God says, here's the sign of the covenant. Do this so that it will go well with you. But it's not uh, an operating condition. It's not a hinge. It's not a contingency. It's a context. This is the sphere of existence that you will experience and enjoy the benefit and the blessing that I'm given. And it's circumcision. A very obviously visceral laying aside of human strength that says my progeny and all that comes from me will be associated with the faithfulness of God. And he goes to the most vulnerable area. Correct. I, you know, I, you may or may not have known this listeners, but I had a hernia surgery last year. I think they call that a core muscle I mean, surgery. Bro, I, was, I was walking around so vulnerable, so exposed at my, my core, my midsection, the place where, yeah, we don't have to show our viewers at home. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, is God chose the most vulnerable place yeah. to make his presence known. Yeah. And, and, and to be a visceral reminder. And what's amazing, yeah. the Lord our God, he who is holy, 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 never blushes about that kind of a thing. Yeah. We do. We think, oh, no, we have to be proper and parochial. God says, this is what you're going to do. To which, of course, you think Abram's going, wait a sec, wait a second. Noah got a rainbow. How come yeah. I've got to do this action? Mm -hmm. Because it's very personal. It's very individual. And the whole point is... God is faithful, you must pass that down to your children. That's the responsibility. Mm -hmm. The book of Judges will come along to show us the recipe for disaster for any society and civilization is when parents fail to tell their children of the faithfulness of God. Mm -hmm. And Israel stumbled into that. But the sign of circumcision, just like the sign of baptism, is, hey, this is a new way of thinking, of living, and of extending my legacy and my lineage. So God implements this. It wasn't a brand new idea. All the peoples around that area, they all did circumcision for different ways, different reasons, but it was always the priestly class of these pagan societies. God tells Abram, every single male in your household, because I want you all to be ambassadors and attestations of my faithfulness and my grace. And so Abram, at 90 years old, he does it. Because something has to be cut off. Something's, I've got to... Uh, uh, yes, we know. We're, something we're saying, has to die. Something physical, but I, I have to be existentially cut off from some strength or some assumed or presumed perceived, perceived strength. strength, right? I right. mean, God is moving his people into a space of the dependence that is not only right, but beneficial for them. Yes, yes, which requires... Trust. And so, again, we've talked about belief. What is belief? The Reformers did a, such a huge favor 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. They sort of trisected it. Mm. What is faith? What is belief? And they broke it into three strands that is really helpful, I think, for us, even in the 21st century, to remember. They said there is a sense, or noticia a sensus fidelum in Latin. So there has to be understanding. There has to be understanding of the content of our faith. And there has to be agreement. 
I have to say, yes, I think that's actually correct. Once I understand the content, I agree that it's correct. And then trust, I live as though it was actually true. Mm -hmm. What we see in Abram, Abraham, and later even the disciples, they understood a lot. They agreed with most. It was the trust component that they would sometimes forget and rely on their own perceived strengths, mm -hmm. forgetting that it had been laid aside, cut off, mm -hmm. and discarded. Mm -hmm. And so even for us, we look at Abraham and we go, but, but what in the world? He should have known better. It's a cautionary tale for us that Moses wants for the children of Israel to understand, but our God remains faithful. But, and isn't it part of the predicament that is this long unfurling that leads up to the revelation of Jesus Christ as a man, the incarnation? Right. Isn't this a long unfurling where the people of Israel have to be cut off? right, from the world, so to speak. They need to be cut off and as a sign to the world around them and to themselves and to one another, they are circumcised as unto the Lord, right? But, they, but there's not, there's, there's that negation, but there's not that additive yet. And I only, I, what I yeah. mean by that is the, the filling of the Holy Spirit gives us empowerment. Right, we that, know more than Moses knew. Right. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. We have the completion of the canon of Scripture. We have the coming of Christ, the Messiah has come and he has done what he said he would do. I'm just saying that as in Genesis, where we start the sort of, where we kind of start the Old Testament, right? Even though it's kind of out of sequence, like a, like a Quentin Tarantino movie, <laughs> Moses telling it, you know, but, but as we start the sequence, what we can look forward to until Christ becomes incarnate, what we can look forward to is a people who have been told what they ought and ought not do, but are essentially powerless except to the degree that they are but the shadow of the substance yeah was present when moses tells them later deuteronomy 30 this has always been about a spiritual reality that is symbolized physically that's why we say biblically baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality moses mm -hmm. tells them this is not just about an outward expression or, or an action it is an outward symbol of an inward reality. You are to be circumcised of heart, even in the Old Testament. You were to trust God. In that case, you trusted that the Levitical system of atonement and sacrifice was adequately substitutionarily efficacious in the mind of God. You trusted him that he would one day send the one who would do it once for all. We look back with the same kind of trust, saying that God's going to do that, and he has. So you get that wonderful rearticulation of the promise, the covenant, and in chapter 17, it's the oath. And then we transition into this sort of bizarro encounter where some time passes. And in chapter 18, Abraham is sitting in his tent and he's approached by these three guys. Yeah. And again, we, we tend to forget this is the pre-incarnate Christ who is coming to, to visit Abraham. We'll see him, this same Christ, in Isaiah chapter 6, he is the one high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and the smoke from his throne room fills the temple, and the robe fills the temple, and the seraphim are flying around. It's Jesus. But isn't Abe just doing what Abe does? I mean, does he really know this? At first, no, but then very quickly he understands. He calls him Lord. Mm -hmm. He understands that this is a divine visitor, and apparently Abraham is used to speaking with God, but now he's somehow viscerally bodily present. So Abraham shows him incredible hospitality. He mm -hmm. sort of self-demures. He says, oh, a little bit of water and a morsel of bread. Well, he prepares a massive feast, serves these three guys, 
Here's Sarah. He's, they're eating in silence. Abraham waits on them personally. He asks, finally, the silence is broken. The, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, who is Christ, says, where's your wife? Abraham says, she's in the tent. She's going to be having a child before this time next year. And she snickers and says something sort of lewd in the private meditation of her heart, which is instructive that mm -hmm. God knows her heart. Says, why'd you laugh? Is anything too marvelous for God? Mm -hmm. Now, I want you to hear the important thing about that question. Mm -hmm. I didn't tease this out yesterday. We just didn't have time. Yeah. Pre-incarnate Christ asks Sarah, is anything too marvelous with God? With God, all things are possible. 2,000 years later, Jesus is walking around with the disciples. And he asks his disciples, because they say it's, he says it's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. It's mm -hmm. you know, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they go, well, then it's impossible. And he says, and you can almost hear the, the smile in his voice, is anything too marvelous for God? With, all, with, men, all things, or with God, all things are possible. It's a callback to what he's done as he encountered Sarah to bring the provision for the promise 2,000 years later. It's almost an identical quote, and it's the same person who asks the disciples. Bring the provision for the promise. He himself, as a person, is the provision of the promise. He's asked, Sarah, I'm going to provide. I made a promise. I'm going to provide for it. Mm -hmm. 2,000 years later, he's talking to the disciples. I am the provision of the promise. It's not Isaac, although he's a foreshadowing and a prefiguring and a type. It's me. I am the provision of the promise. I'm the promised seed that Paul will talk about in Galatians and that he's explaining to the disciples. So this is before they go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Correct. Two of the angels. Correct. The other stays with the Christ, the, the, the Christ stays with Abraham. Correct. They stand there and they talk. And I mean, here's this very real picture of Abraham standing, talking to the bodily form of God as the two angels sojourn down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. And God says to Abram, shall I hide from you what I'm about to do? You, who I'm going to make a blessing to all the peoples, let me tell you what my plan is. And he unfolds it all. says, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry of their wickedness is so horrific. And Abram, Abraham remembers that this is where his nephew Lot now lives and that he's rescued these people in chapter 14 from the kings that waged war. And he says, well, hold on a second. Will you rescue for a few? And so he's inverting the principle of the time that says the, the wickedness of an individual affects everybody. He's wanting to know, will the righteousness of an individual also positively impact someone? And what God's going back and forth in a very judicial legal sense is saying, yes, I will accept the righteousness of the few or the one even for the many. Who does the inverting? Abraham, as he presents the case. Yes. He's being priestly. Is it? He's being priestly, and he's he's recognized. I agree with you. That place is sinful. Right. I agree with you. You have the eyes to to judge whether or not it's in need of destruction. Right. And something of my heart is there. Yes. Something yes. I, someone I have watch care over. Uh, some sort. Like you said, he becomes the priest, doing the advocating. Yep. For those he loves. Yes. Because when he says Lot, he really means, and that nephew that I liked, and that niece. Sure. And that, the, you know, he's talking about the one, but he means the family. Right, right. And so he puts himself in the position of asking for substitution, mm. which is a, a, a very clear for 
runner of the gospel, mm-hmm. asking for the righteousness of one to be imputed to those who absolutely don't deserve it and don't even know to ask for it. Not only that, but when it comes to them, they want to molest it Correct. or whatever the best right. word, rape it, uh, take the good thing that God has given and call it, it. call it a bad thing, twist right. it. Right, right, right. And so then we have the strange story where the angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah, they're given shelter in Lot's home. He greets them in the city gate because he's an official now. Which he shows his own priest, uh, the flair of priesthood. And so much as he wants, he says, it's not good for you to be in this place. Come to my place. Let me give you shelter. Which you kind of think as you read the text, well then Lot, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. If it's not good for these guys, yeah. why are you here? Why are you safe? Right. He shouldn't have been safe, but he was. So he had some modicum of influence and security and and abundant life and prosperity that he didn't want to leave. But he, but he, but he, but when those came to his house, he had he didn't have it, near. He wasn't nearly as safe as maybe he thought he. He was not. He was great. Great explanation there. Yeah. So the men of the town all come and then try to do horrible, heinous things to these visitors. It's a familiar story. They strike the guys with blindness, and Lot and his family have to be dragged out. They don't want to leave. The angels grab the family, drag them out, almost against their will. You can almost see like the claw marks in the floor as they're being dragged out. I mean, that's a place to camp out just for a moment. Sure. Just to say that we love our lives so much, sometimes God has to pry our lives from our cold, dead hands. (laughs) That's exactly right. Do you know? And if we cling to them, if we look back, we become fragmented. That is to say, he who holds all things together, Jesus, becomes less materially efficacious in our life if we love something other. Francis Schaeffer used to say, if you break one law, you break two. Because any any of the commandments that you break are predicated on the idea of loving something else more than you love God. So here are here is Lot and his family having to be um, physically removed, so physically what? delivered. Why you'll have the half-brother of Jesus 2,000 years later say, count it all joy when you suffer these things. Mm-hmm. Because that is the prying open mm-hmm. of our white-knuckle grasp on things that are actually destroying and I, us. And I also wonder if some of those Israelites were not like Moses. It was better with Pharaoh. Sure they were. And so what is Moses delivering them to a message of Lot's wife who becomes fragmented? You're not who you are if you rather if you long to if you pine to be under Pharaoh's watch care, you're 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 not the children of God. Right. That's exactly right. You you look back to Egypt, you're like Lot's wife looking mm-hmm. back to the Gomorrah. Right. Mm-hmm. So don't look you remember the Israelites were screaming at Moses, we want to go back where we had pots of meat mm-hmm. and all that. they didn't have pots of meat, they had mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. But it was better than the uncertainty right. of walking with God, even though they could see the manifestation of God. A bird in the hand, they That's, might say. Sure, 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 sure. So you're right. That's good exposition. Mm-hmm. Why would Moses write these things? Now, there were certainly other things that sure. he didn't write down. Sure. He writes this down for the Messianic community mm-hmm. to know to walk with their God. Mm-hmm. So Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 is destroyed. We have this crazy story of... Lot escaping with his daughters. His wife looks back. She's turned to salt. The text is very matter of fact. Does it mean she's cooked to ash or does she literally turn into salt? Don't know. But what we know is that Jesus believed that that happened. Now that's interesting. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, God, standing with Abraham, watching all this from a distance, sees and is aware of the 
escape of Lot and his wife and daughters out of the city is aware that she turns to salt. You have Jesus talking to the Pharisees in Luke 17 saying, hey, I'm going to bring destruction. Remember Lot's wife. Don't be like her. So whatever happened to her, yeah. Jesus seemed that's to a very That's a very real... And that uh, literally happened, whatever yeah. it happens there. And so she dies, and Lot and his daughters escape, they go to a little town, and then they go into a cave, and they think the world has ended. The daughters do. They get him drunk. They seduce him. They both conceive. Okay, wait. They think the world's ending, so they think it's this is the right thing to do. He's Absolutely. the only seed we have. Correct. We have to bend If it's our to father. be, it's up to me, and so they commit incest with their father one at a time and poor Lot is so distraught. I mean, he's just lost his wife. Well, people his home do and crazy everything. things when they're afraid. Crazy they? things. People just don't think right. Yeah. They're, you talk, You preached one time about you can be sober or you can be drunk on alcohol, but you can also be drunk on anger. You can sure. be drunk on fear. Yep. In other words, you can be, what is it to, to be beside yourself? Mm -hmm. You know, you become someone other than you are to the right. degree that you would want to bed your father yeah. in order to save the world. Right, because you, you, at the end of your rope, you'll grasp for anything rather than clinging to the promises of God. Now, that tells us that they didn't know or that it was too foreign from them. The crazy thing is that this union between Lot and his two daughters produces the people of Moab and the people of Ammon, who were for generations and generations enemies of Israel. But what's maddening is that just a few hundred years later, about contemporary with the time of Gideon in the book of Judges, right. 6, 7, and 8, and 9 in there. You have the story of Ruth, who is a Moabitess. Mm -hmm. She comes from the union of Lot and one of his mm -hmm. daughters. And from Ruth, we have the Savior, Jesus. Yeah. Now, that symmetry is mind-blowing that he is the one who rains down destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then his incarnation will actually come through the line of Ruth, a Moabitess. If you're making this stuff up, you don't include that seedy, saucy detail, but that Jesus comes from this despicable, prohibited union of Lot and his daughter. His incarnation stems from that. It's amazing. So Abraham, seeing all of this, you would think, okay, now he gets it. Now he understands the justice and the judgment of God. Surely he's going to practice righteousness. By the way, he does, does he have Isaac yet? No. So here, here no. I mean, I wonder if he was like, Sarah, why did you, I mean, look at what God did to Lot's wife. Right. You know, like there seem both in both stories, it seems like the woman has shown unbelief. <laughs> uh, that's in both stories, both have shown unbelief, meaning. But yeah, sure. I sure. mean, Abraham was not guiltless in going into Hagar. He knew what God had told him, and mm -hmm. he's really, I think, just trying to subdue and acquiesce his, his wife, and it was a bad deal. We come to chapter 20, and you're thinking, now the man of faith is going to show us and be an exemplar of faithfulness. No, they head down south. They immediately find themselves in the kingdom of Gerar that is led by a guy named Abimelech, and immediately he starts saying, well, no, 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 she's my sister, Y'all don't kill me. Just take her into your harem. It's no big deal. That way I'll be safe. And you're thinking, how is this guy still operating according to this old perceived strength? It's because he believes, but he still needs his unbelief helped. But God will not tolerate that 
corruption or even the perception of corruption of his promise. He'd already said in chapter 17, Sarah, you're going to give birth within the year. He says it again. Um, you're going to have a child within a year. And so he cannot let her euphemistically go into this pagan Canaanite king. And so God intervenes uh, tremendously, comes to Abimelech in a dream, says, you're as good as dead. You've taken a married woman. He says, I'm guiltless. I didn't know. And God never apologizes. He says, you're under condemnation. You're going to die unless the intercessor prays for you. Yeah. And so God rescues, not because Abraham's a great guy, because he's not, but because God is faithful. He makes sure that the provision is made and that the union between Abraham and Sarah is pure so that no one, including these Israelites, 430 years later under Moses, so that no one can say, well, hold on a second. What is really going on here? Did God really? Mm -hmm. Yes, God really. Yeah. He is faithful. Well, and it also occurs to me that as Moses, this is this is in the 40 years of in the wilderness, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they all of these people are waiting for the promised land. Right. They're waiting on God. And Moses here is using a sermon illustration to say, Sarai did not wait. Right. And look at what Correct. destruction, you know, we've got to wait in weakness. We've got to wait well, waiting and praising our God whose nature does not change. There's Correct. no shadow of change. He's going to provide for Sarah. He's going to provide for you. Well, that's such a great point just to, to conclude because yeah. the children of Israel ultimately at a wonderfully named place, Kadesh Barnea, did not trust that God would make good on his promise to give them the land. He already promised to Abram, land, offspring, blessing. Mm -hmm. Centuries go by. They're about to go into the land and they say, it's too hard in there. There's giants. We can't go in there. And they did not trust that God is faithful. This is why every single week I have said, hey, we've got one big idea. It's that God is faithful. And I want that to be the repeated refrain because we all know it academically. We understand it to a point. We agree with it most of the time. We don't trust when things... Most sin occurs in our life because we have that's temporarily it. forgotten that God is faithful. Correct. Exactly right. There you so go. it's the remedy. Yes. And his faithfulness, it turns out, became nowhere clearer, more apparent, or efficacious than in Christ. Absolutely. We're going to look at that next week. See you then. God Bye, bless. guys.